Hello, and welcome to Inside Exams. I'm Craig Barton. I've been teaching maths for 15 years, so by this point there's little I don't know about classrooms of kids. But walking into exam halls can still feel a bit like stepping into the unknown. So, in this series I'm seeking out knowledge that we can take back to school to give our students the best chance when they open a question paper. As always, I want to know what you'd like to know. I'm George and I'm a physics teacher. I'm keen to write more of my own topic tests and classroom assessments. What factors do I need to be aware of to make sure that my exams are just as valid as national qualifications? Can I easily follow some of the same principles? Right, this is what I know of validity in the real world. You've probably got a number of mates who track their steps on fitness watches, and they tend to be dead proud of telling you how many steps they've done. You know the type. But get them to count their steps out loud, and their watch will come up with a slightly different number. That invalidates the data they're trying to collect. Basically, the instrument isn't measuring what it's meant to measure. I can feel I've just crushed the dreams of so many eager walkers. Now, unfortunately, George, that's pretty much the extent of my knowledge on validity. So to find out about some of those key principles that make an assessment valid, I'm going to meet AQA's Director of Assessment and Curriculum, Dave Meller. Okay, Dave, thank you very much for the invite to come to AQA. I'm very much looking forward to discussing assessment validity, and I'm going to start with a deep question. What's the purpose of assessment? The purpose of it is to test the students on the content of a specification in our case, but to try and find out what they know and what they can do. And what you want an assessment to be able to do is to indicate to employers what skills and knowledge those students have or to further study for university or whatever. And that's the, the, the real purpose of the assessment. And good assessment should separate better students from weaker students in that subject area. Now, I'll tell you where I start to get confused because there's two words bombing around with, with assessment because you've said good assessment, but of course that's very much open to interpretation. Yeah. So you've got validity on the one hand and reliability on the other hand. Would you be able to just distinguish between the two for us? Is that all right? Yeah, validity is about whether or not... There's, and there's lots of definitions of validity yes, here. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But for us, it's about whether or not you're assessing the right thing in the right way so that better students at geography, for instance, get a better mark and hence a better grade. Reliability is about the repeatability of the assessment and whether or not the questions are marked in a way that is consistent, the test will give you the same results within you know, a reasonable margin of error. And if you think of it as a bit like archery, the validity is, are you hitting the bullseye with your arrows? The reliability is, how consistently are you doing that? Are they all nicely clustered around it? If it's not valid, well, you might be hitting top left of the target. Yes. If it's not reliable, you might be hitting the target, but they're scattered all over the place. Nice. And that is a way of thinking about it, if you like. So the narrower the cluster of the arrows is, the more reliable your assessment will be because the outcomes are the same test after test for the same student or they're consistent across students of the same ability. I love that analogy. Fantastic. I want you to imagine that you've got an assessment in front of you, you or one of your team. Yeah. How do you go about determining whether it's a valid assessment? So when you're designing an assessment, there's, there's two real areas that you're looking at. You're looking at what the content is that you need to assess. So content is decided for GCSEs and A-levels predominantly by the Department for Education. Mm. 
And then the boards take that content and they can add to it in some cases. But ultimately, the core content is determined for us. And then the assessment objectives. And sometimes I think there's um, this misunderstanding about what the assessment objectives are for. Sometimes people ignore them completely. (laughs) Sometimes people teach the kids about the assessment objectives. And whilst I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, I'm not sure it's a good thing either. It depends on your students and so on. Because all the assessment objectives are are an indication of the skills that those students need to be able to demonstrate. How does that feed into validity then? So once once we're aware of these dis- different assessment objectives, if you're either creating an assessment or you're looking at one, how, how do these assessment objectives determine or perhaps um, invalidate the, the validity of the assessment? With, with validity, the really important thing is, are you assessing one what's on the specification? So it's got to match the content. And sometimes that's a bit grey, but two, the the assessment objectives themselves, they always have a weighting attached to them. And they're the same across all the boards, so that you have comparable demand of assessments. Yes, Um, Because if we had loads more AO1 than (laughs) AO3, then our test would be easier than a test by a different board. So when you're designing your qualification, there's a number of things you have to do. You have to say, how much assessment do I need to cover all the content? Mm. Now... In an ideal world, for the most valid form of assessment, you would want to cover all the content every year. absolutely. But you can't do that for GCSE. You'd have GCSEs of 10 or 20 or more hours of assessment. So how do you sample across the content so that you get a decent understanding of the kids' knowledge across the whole piece and that the student can show successfully what they can do and what they know and so on? And that will tell you how big your test is and how many marks you need and what sort of questions. And then once you've got the size of your assessments, you then need to work out, well, how much of that assessment is AO1, how Mm. much is AO2, how much is AO3? And different specifications have different approaches to that. So a specification like science, the questions are all different every year and they're assessed different combinations of assessment objectives together, like mathematics as Mm. well. For subjects like history the structure of the assessment is the same every year. Yes. But what changes is the context and the content that you assess. So for history, there's always a relatively short question at the start that allows the students to engage with the examination and get going. It's always on AO1. There's a source with it. There is a sort of uh, structure there. And and that helps the students because there's an element, it's sort of good predictability. They know what to expect. In the science, they they don't know the order that things will appear in and they don't know the detail of the structure, but they know the types of questions they'll get. But what you don't want is bad predictability. And the bad predictability is, actually, I know what content is going to come up. I can second guess the content. I can see a pattern. Yes. And we work really quite hard to make sure that we don't create that bad predictability. And yet we still have to assess the whole content over the life of the specification. And it's a juggling act. And then you start to look at, well, what does that mean for the demand of the assessment? Mm. Because you need to make sure the demand of your assessment is not so high that your lowest ability students can't really engage with the assessment. Because if you are a weaker student and you're coming into a subject and you can only answer the first question and then can't do anything else... What are you doing for the next hour and a half? It's demoralising. But equally, you need it to be demanding enough that you stretch and challenge the most able students. For GCSE, that's quite hard because you have a very 
broad range of abilities. And for some subjects like maths and science, we tear papers to accommodate that. For other subjects like English, we differentiate by what the students can show and can do on some of the essay type yes. questions in literature, for instance. But you don't want to combine, say, in science, assessment objectives that are more challenging with really hard content mm. in too many cases. Mm. Because otherwise, all of a sudden, you've ramped the demand of yes. your assessment and it will be much harder than last year's. And in an ideal world, you want the assessment to be similar demand year on year. Because if the assessment changes over time, then your grade boundaries fluctuate over yes. time. It's harder for teachers to know how their students are doing when they use them for mocks and practices. So you want to try and keep that consistent level of demand. So how do you validly assess the full grade range one to nine? It really depends on the the different subjects and the different history that they have and, and different ways of doing things. For something like English literature, for example, the questions are designed such that every student can have a go at them and you differentiate on the basis of outcome. For something like mathematics or sciences, we often ask questions of varying demand throughout the paper. And generally, we tend to ask easier questions at the start and harder ones at the end. But it's not, it's not like a universal yes. progression throughout the paper because otherwise students will get to a certain point and think, right, I couldn't answer that question, mm, I won't carry on. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, in a GCSE, I was helping my daughter do a maths homework the other day, trying to do a, a few questions out of a higher tier maths paper. And uh, we got about halfway through and I was starting to struggle. <laughs> yeah. But I said, well, carry on because there'll be some questions yeah. further on where at least you might be able to do, or we might be able to do, part A. Absolutely, or absolutely. The, the first parts of the questions. So whilst there is a, a sort of ramping of difficulty of questions throughout, it's not universal. And we try and make sure that every student's encouraged to get to the end of the paper because they may pick up marks. And it's important the kids know that, isn't it, as well? Because, yeah. again, I've, I've had kids exactly like that who'll get to question 12, can't do question 12, what's the point of me looking at question 13 and yeah. so on? Well, already I'm sensing just how complex this, this process is of putting together these assessments. I just want to go back to that idea of sampling the, the, the content because yeah. as, a, as a maths teacher, I've always been there where when it was in the, the old specification, there was a bit of predictability in there. You, yeah. you could, there was some fairly safe bets that were going to come up each year. So you'd definitely make sure you'd focus on those. And if it paid off, fantastic. Your kids probably did a little bit better than maybe they should have done, for want of a better phrase. If it didn't pay off, well, then maybe they did a little bit worse. How do you sample the context? Because it's a massive part of the validity of this, isn't it? Yeah, the, the challenge with sampling content is how important is some of that content? If it's some underlying fundamental principles, then that's pretty much guaranteed to come up every year and you would want to include yes. that. So there will be some content that basically says, I always appear. Right. It might appear in different forms, but it will always appear. And is that literally kind of a list of content and these are kind of the green ones that are definitely coming up? Is it like... Uh... Pretty much, yeah. So we often will sit and try and map out in rough at least what does the content look like over, say, a three or a five-year period? Which topic areas do we want to assess? Because the last thing you want to do is end up with the assessment in year five that's got all the little obscure bits of topic <laughs> yeah, yeah. that are not you know, necessarily 
fundamental to what you're teaching and they're more peripheral and so on. So you need to try and map it out over time so that you don't end up uh, either over-assessing something or under-assessing mm. it. And we have sort of assessment grids which basically list all the content down the side and wow. which paper it's going to appear in in which series that we wow. map out. So for one series for, say, GCSE Combined Science, each paper has an A3 grid of content coverage and skills coverage that we balance. And we'll often say, we'll assess this content on this assessment objective in this series and marry them up. And then the clever bit and the really creative bit and the bit that our assessment writers are brilliant at, and most of them or many of them are teachers or ex-teachers, is then saying, how could I make that a really good question? How could I make that engaging? So uh, we had a chemistry question on A-level uh, about uh, biodegradable plastic glass and the chemistry behind that. And inspiration struck the, the question setter at a beer festival where these biodegradable glasses ah, nice. were being yes, used. Yes. And he said, I can use this for a chemistry question. Yeah. Flash a genius. And, and really innovative and clever and a really good AO2 type yes. question. So that's that's the clever bit. So I, I appreciate validity is a super complex uh, complex idea or, or concept. I'm just thinking about whether I'm creating an assessment or I'm, I'm looking at an assessment. So I've got in my head now that there's got to be this balance of assessment objectives. Yeah. I've got that there's got to be this coverage of the domain of the content that, that needs to be obsessed, uh, assessed. I've got this balance of predictability. It can't be too predictable, but it can't be so bizarre that when the kids sit in the exam, they've never seen anything like it before. Mm. Is there anything else that, that I should, kind of a general, give a general idea that this is a valid assessment? So there are some sort of more basic rules that you can look at. And we talk about construct. The construct is what is it you're trying to assess? What, what's the test? And what you want to try and do is avoid construct irrelevance. Oh, okay. And construct irrelevance is just basically your test is assessing something that it isn't supposed to assess. Right. So in a mathematics paper, for example, if you have really wordy questions with complex language mm. and so forth, actually you start to test the kid's ability to understand the language as opposed to can they show that they can do the mathematics. And, and language is one way of creating construct irrelevance. You, you might ask a really, really hard question that only 10% of the students are going to be able to answer. But you should never ask a question that only 10% of the students can understand. That's nice, yes. Because... It's not that the question is just telling the student what it is they need to do. Mm. If it's not clear what they need to do, then that is not assessing the right thing. It's construct irrelevance. And is, I can imagine that, that the literacy or the reading demands are, are the biggest example of this. Are there other examples? Yeah. So use of diagrams that they, or pictures or maps that they don't actually then need to answer the question because often the students will go, well, why did you... Yes, put that in there. Yes. I can answer this just from my own knowledge. I don't need to refer to the source material yes. to be able to answer it. Is there, for want of a better word, cultural capital? Mm. So for something like Shakespeare, you have to understand some of the 
context in which the plays were written. And, and that cultural capital is essential to enable you to answer the question. But if you ask a question, let's say there's a piece of source material for a GCSE English, and you put a question in about, or a source about fly fishing or a gymkhana or something, then how many students are actually going to have any real understanding yes. of what these things yes. are? Because they don't have this cultural capital yes. to actually ex uh, access these things. We're building up quite a list here of, of things we have to consider when we're talking validity and assessment. Is there anything else on that list that we need to be aware of? So one of the, the aspects of things like language is, is actually not, not just the context of the language, but whether the words used are appropriate. We publish lists of command words for all of our specifications, and we publish what they mean, because sketching art versus sketching maths yes. are both legitimate command words, but you would end up with a very different result <laughs> if you ask for the same thing. Yeah. So we try and be quite specific about what they are. And where possible, we try and be consistent. I think the other area is around ambiguity of the tasks. Mm. You have to try and put yourself in the shoes of a 16-year-old, 18-year-old when you're writing the questions. The use of language can be different, but also life experience can be different. Yes. And really what you want is your task to be as clear and as unambiguous as possible. So if you're asking a question and you're looking for, say, three reasons why something works like this, why not tell them, give me three reasons why this works? Because then they know exactly what they're expecting. Yes. Now, the fact that there might be three marks attached to it would probably give them a good indication. Mm. But be really specific and be really tight and try and make your tasks unambiguous. Because if the task is ambiguous and the students answer in an unexpected way, you can look at this and you can say, it's not what we originally intended, it's not what the design was intending to do. But actually I can see how they've read the question to respond in this way. Yes. And it would be very unfair not to award marks for what is a good answer to a question that's been interpreted in a different way. So what we then do at the standardising process is actually make adjustments to the mark scheme to accommodate appropriate answers. It maintains the validity to a degree, mm. but you've not assessed the thing you thought you were assessing. You've assessed something maybe a little bit different. Yes. But actually it's fair to the students to reward them for that. You design your specification to try and ensure it's valid. You design your assessment structure to try and ensure it's valid. You design your marking to make sure that the examiners all understand what the standard is that's being applied and what the right answers are and what's not acceptable. Where's the boundary between one mark and two marks? Yes. All of those sorts of things. You then go on and monitor the marking and try and protect that validity to ensure they mark at the right standard. You award, where do you put the grade boundaries, <laughs> impacts on the validity, yes. and then what you do post-results. And all the way through this chain, it's a bit like, um, you know, in the, the, the Westerns, the old Western movies where someone's house catches fire. Yep. They have this, uh, this bucket chain. They're passing buckets right, from hand okay. to hand, trying to put the fire yeah. out. And the aim is to get as much of the water as fast as possible from the well to the fire. Yes. And if you slop the stuff out, then it's, it's gone. The water's gone. <laughs> well, validity is a bit like that. You can start with a perfect design. But if at any point mm. you manage to lose some validity for mm. some reason... You can't get it back in. It won't go back in the bucket. Yes. You can try and ameliorate it, but it doesn't 
doesn't correct it. Yes. Validity we think about as an end-to-end piece all the way through the process. If we do this, what's the impact on the validity of the assessment? So it might even be, actually quite a few kids have misunderstood this question, but the question is unambiguous and it's very clear. And what they've written is technically not correct. You might say, well, we could give those kids the benefit of the doubt. Actually, you invalidate the assessment mm, for doing that because mm. you're you're not separating those kids who really did know yes, what they were talking yes. about from those who kind of knew yes. but weren't quite accurate enough. So decisions you make at you know standardising at marking can actually invalidate your assessment, even though Jeez. the design is good. So that bucket chain is something we try and preserve. I, I like that that picture of the bucket, and I wonder. How do you know you've put the fire out? What, what what makes a successful, valid assessment? At what stage of the process can you sit back and think, yeah, that, that works, that? I think the proof in the pudding is in the eating. It's, <laughs> it's only once you've got all the results are at the end of the day and it's all been marked yes. and you can look at it in the cold light of day and say, did that assessment achieve the things that we wanted it to? You can put checks and balances in throughout the process to try and ensure that you maintain validity in your assessment. And it's not a, an on-off thing. It, it can be more valid yes. or less valid. Yes, um, yes. It's not a binary feature. Although we often do talk about this is a valid assessment as if it is some mythical... Yes, of you course. Know, there's only one way of doing exactly. it uh, when that's not true. At the end of it all, what you want your assessments to do is... To differentiate you want to spread the students marks yes. as much as possible if you spread the marks out the grade boundaries are likely to be quite widely spaced and students having a good day or a bad day are much less likely to be affected by being close to a grade yes. boundary if they're all spread out so it's one way that we try and ameliorate that challenge of sampling where you know a student could get lucky or unlucky yes and if there are a few marks lucky or a few marks unlucky if your grade boundaries are far apart then it works well and it doesn't matter because they don't change grade, which is, at the end of the day, what's important to the student. Well, this has been an absolute revelation for me. I didn't know much about validity. I think I'm a bit more clued up now. So thank you so much for your time. No worries. Thank you. Clearly, a huge amount of work goes into making sure as much water as possible stays in the validity bucket. However, not all students achieve what are considered good grades, and this means they may have to resit in order to progress. So, how can we encourage them to try again with a resit? Julia Smith is a former maths teacher, an author, and now works as a teacher trainer. She has some pretty innovative thoughts about motivating students to give assessments another shot. Julia, I am so pleased to be talking to you today because I think, so I've been teaching 15 years and I think for most of those years, I've routinely failed to teach my GCSE research students particularly well. And I don't think I'm getting much better at it. So I'm hoping you're going to help me here. So to kick things off, what are some of the challenges of teaching students who need to resit their GCSE? Um, I think Professor Susan Wallace has, has um, kind of coined this phrase, they're rhinos, they're really here in name only. Um, they're a bit thick skinned, they've got some attitude as well. 
they go to college or they stay on at school to do other things and the reset happens to them as well and it's not very welcome in a lot of cases. Um, so the challenges, motivation and, and valuing that qualification, national numeracy have hit it spot on the, on the head when they mention about the student valuing the qualification, believing that they can do it a second time round with you and then they might put some effort in. Fantastic. Well, we're going to dive into some practical good, strategies good. Uh, uh, later on. Just thinking about GCSE maths in particular, do you have any stats on how many students are, are resitting and how many actually pass? Yes. So this year, uh, 143,000 students resat their GCSE wow. mandatory. So they would have had grade threes or below. And out of that 143,000, 25,000 achieved a grade four out of their resit qualification. So on a macro level, that's absolutely brilliant. Mm. It was 6% up from the previous year in terms of June entries. Wow. So on a macro level, 25,000 students gaining a grade four, which is that Willy Wonka golden ticket to riches <laughs> and success like no other qualification. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. But on a, a local level, the national outcomes are 17.8%, which means in a class of 20, you'll be lucky if three or four pass. Jeez. And of course, that's, that's spread that's out. Challenging. And you, you're going to get yeah. some colleges where maybe no, no students yes, are going to pass. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's a very tricky situation in terms of motivating the staff to yes, keep them going, yep. getting the students involved and attending. That's one of the major yes, issues. Yes. And then there's a the whole kind of keeping the momentum going um, because they have to keep going subsequent years and years and years. So we had, there was one student this year, Lauren, who passed, eventually got her grade four of GCSE after nine attempts. Nine. Nine attempts. And that, you wow. know, all credit to her. That's fantastic. But she needed it. She needed it yes. to go to university to do occupational therapy. But we do now see, quite commonly, students that have sat it seven times. And that's a real challenge. I'll tell you what, Julia, I'm on a bit of a downer now about mm. this. So pick, pick me up a bit. What, yep. Why are you so passionate about it? Because I think it, it, there are thousands and thousands of students out there for whom... That grade four will open so many doors, will absolutely open so many doors. And I think they need to be championed. Also, there's so much complexity to it that, that really becoming a specialist in the reset arena, I think, has allowed me to have some significant impact. And now we're very, very fortunate to be supported by AQA with the five R's approach, which is now being rolled out. We've got 88 colleges taking part in this massive trial, looking at ways in which we can help the students primarily. That's what it's all about. But also give the teachers some really good tools so that what they're delivering doesn't look and feel and sound like school. Because yes. if it does, you're just going to get the same result. What those five R's? The five R's, it's a lesson structure. The, the five R's are recall. You revise one topic every hour hour for 15 minutes and you talk oh, about okay. it so you revise a topic that's the third r you repeat that topic but just looking at exam questions so the revised part is talking about it discussing it looking at things remembering what you can from before the repeat part is looking at that same topic but just focusing on three or four exam questions and the final part is about exam readiness because exam technique is really key as well for a grade three moving to grade four they they make so many numpty errors yeah. and those are the <laughs> quickest ones to sort out for a recent 
teacher. So oh, that's a technical term, then, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yes, numpty errors. It's not the student being the numpty; it's the numpty errors that they make, like and everyone it. makes those. And these five R's—is this—is mm. this essentially a lesson structure? It's a lesson structure, an hour structure. So you have—it's a spiral, so it repeats again. So if you have three hours delivery, you you go through the five R's one cycle, then again. It's all based on attention span, spaced in the interleave practice, nothing lasting longer than fifteen minutes, and you're keeping coming back to reminding them constant reminders over time this is great this i'm, I'm part of me's fuming because i haven't heard of these five r's yeah, before yeah but i'll tell you a couple of, i'll tell you a couple of things i love about this i, I don't know about you julia i love a structure and a yeah. routine yes. i love something to follow yes and i think the kids like it too it's yes. it's they know what to expect it's consistent and that brings me to the second thing i like about this and that is it'll feel different to what they did at gcse Definitely. and it's now okay um we're not just going to repeat what we've done for the last five years this mm. is this is GCSE reset here's a structure in place it's yep. different and it's designed to get give you the best chance of getting that elusive grade yeah the whole premise of it was <clears throat> about revision because if you think about the word revision you're revisioning you're seeing things differently to first time round because you oh, didn't like quite that. get it all revision yeah so I it's like a whole that. revision year so because they've seen fractions since year three year four yes. they've seen mean median and mode since year five year six do you know that's fascinating that I, I think a lot of my teaching of gcse research has been assuming it's a vision they've mm. never seen it before mm. so i just crack no, no, they've seen everything oh. everything they've seen yes they've seen enough there's no you know place for for new topics until the summer yes. term in, in my kind of uh, viewpoint they've seen enough to pass it's just you need to sort out what they sort of know carry on with what they definitely do know but it's about that point about practicing till you cannot get it wrong yes I like rather that. than practicing till you get it right and also the fact that they have to do some daily math so there's a big push on giving them the resources within the five R's project that we have running. I, I've been going wrong with assessment, you know, mm. because, again, the only thing I'm looking at when I, if I'm honest, when I start planning to teach a GCSE research group is their, their GCSE results. So I've mm. got their grade mm. and maybe I'll get from whatever awarding body they've done a little breakdown of, of, of what questions they've got right and wrong. Yeah. But of course, that's just a single exam that, that samples from a very wide domain. Mm. And I, if I'm starting to base my planning just on that and you've got the fact that kids have in that class, some kids have nailed that particular topic according to the GCSE, some kids haven't and so on. So how do you what assessment data do you use and, and how do you use it? Mm. We're looking at the basic skill test. So there's yeah. three papers, nine questions, one question on addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, fractions, decimals, percentages, scale and ratio. Those are the nine Good basics. Good knowledge there. You did which, well, I wrote them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I should remember them. The nine basics underpin the curriculum. If yes. they cannot multiply, they're going to struggle with area. Of and course. if they can't subtract, they're going to struggle, etc. So... Three basic skills tests. One is very easy, nine questions. Two is slightly harder, nine questions. The third one is another nine questions. So there's just 27 questions. Do them fairly early on in the term. There's a full set of teacher's notes as well that I wrote, which will tell you if they're getting this wrong, it's because yes. of this. Um, how long do the tests last? Oh, 10 minutes. 10 minutes. And are they sitting them back to back or over three that separate? entirely up to you how well, you what, want to what would you present advise? that. I have delivered it and I've done one per session so I had three one and a half hour sessions so I'd do one yes. in the mix of things in yes. that one and a half okay. hour session so very manageable yes. but they give you a huge piece of information if they've got a grade three 
they will have some gaps or some misconceptions in those nine basics and those are the first ones to sort out and when we trialed it with aqa early on uh, it doubled outcomes wow doubled outcomes for a number of providers which was kind of whoa what's going on this is working this is working really working so i was banging on about it even then (laughs) with the huge sport from aqa i have to say and then some schools started saying oh we're using it for year 11 it's brilliant bottom set year 11 yeah of course some people have morphed it to six hours because they add a reflection point in so it was very adaptable but it's just a very simple approach but it's using things that didn't look feel and sound like school let me ask you this what happens if you um you've identified these nine areas and you've got a class of 20 25 30 kids or something and and it's clear that 20 of them multiplication is is a a gap Mm. but for 10 of them it isn't Mm. um what are you doing there are you putting those 10 off on something else or are you saying no actually look multiplication yeah we we need to really make sure you've hammered this because again, this happens throughout all all schooling, but particularly in research, kids have got different areas of strength and yeah. weakness. How are you managing that? Yeah, so it, it really is about introducing the student padlet early on. Mm. So if they're okay and sound and secure in some bits, they've got the mechanism by which they can go off and do something. Yes, and so, is that within the lesson? Yes, have they got definitely. It? Yes. They need a device, have they yes. got it? Yes, and, and in sixth form, that's generally a lot less of an issue than yes. it is in year 11. Yes. It is about keeping it very simple, working on what the chief exam reports are telling us but we we know what they're they're struggling with working on that so so that they have got every opportunity just to do loads of maths just do shed loads of maths simple got it well i'll tell you what a picture in my head's forming now I've, i've got a structure now i've got some assessment data to go along with it for me the missing piece here is is getting the kids on board the motivational aspect what's that early messaging that you're giving to the kids because they're coming in in September mm. they failed their maths essentially they're, as you say a lot of them the rhinos they, yeah. they, they don't want to be here they would yeah. rather be somewhere else yeah. um, that initial messaging is so important isn't yes. it? Well, what are you saying to them so the starting point I've always loved the National Numeracy website and there's a fantastic video on there it's, I could even probably recount it to you we've we've got a problem in maths it it goes on and it's just three or four minutes long and it sets the scene so you set the scene with students and i play it to everybody and everyone will listen and it tells you half the adult population have the math skills of an 11 year old primary school student so it talks about the wider picture in society yes and then there's some bits and pieces in the resources so things like we've got the video where the boy takes the slip his past slip home and his dad howls crying in the kitchen it's a very funny video again three or four minutes long but it just is a very good talking point yeah. about putting students into the moment of when they pass and get their exam slip next time yes recognizing that well i do things a bit differently it's not going to look feel sound like school yes. yes you've got a part to play it's just revising we've got to revise for the whole year you've seen enough it's just we need to sort out what you don't yet know yeah. and sort out some of the, the easy stuff that you're struggling with. And that's enough to move them from... A, they've already got a grade three. You mentioned before a particular success story of a child who'd sat this nine times yes. and, and eventually yes. passed. It's a different kind of success, isn't it? When when a child's repeatedly struggled at something and yeah. eventually gets it versus yeah. a child who, for example, was on a grade seven all the way and mm. then managed to get a, a grade eight. It's mm. a different feeling for the child and a oh, different absolutely. feeling for the teacher as well. Um, do you have any other favourite success stories to share? I think it's the fact that very early on when I started teaching GCSE maths, I, I I got the Monday night GCSE reset class, which was mainly adults. So for adults, again, a lot of this isn't revision. Mm. Um, A lot of it is is kind of they're fitting in their jobs and they're fitting in everything else around it. So 
to give them a mechanism by which they can do a lot of work for themselves very easily mm. seemed a big thing. And actually, one lady, she got really, really angry with me. And I, I, you know, I was a very green teacher then and just saying, well, if you can't add fractions, have you seen this method? If you can't multiply with decimals, have you seen Napier's bones? And, and half an hour of this, she'd had enough completely of <laughs> right. me. And I said, why are you so annoyed? You know, what have I done? And she says, not you. She said, I'm 40. I want to be a nurse. I can't get onto nursing without my GCSE, uh, C grade as it was then. She said, no one has bothered to show me another way. I thought there was one way to do things. I always mm. thought I was thick. She'd never been able to help her children at primary school. She was a single mum, wanted to go back to work. And she got so annoyed because she felt I'd done in half an hour with her yes. what someone else could have bothered with. Uh, and that really resonated with me. So I was playing around with alternative methods a long, long time ago, back in the day. And that really stuck stuck with me. It really did stick with me. Well, that is superb. Julia, I'm not just saying this. I This has been an absolute game changer for me, this, because I feel empowered now. I've got, I've got a structure. I've got a strategy. I've got the messaging. You put those together and it... it, it it's got its best chance of working. So, yes. so you, you won't get 100% success with all of them, but if we can double outcomes, I think everyone would be very, very, very happy with that. Absolutely. Julia, thank you so much for thank your you, time. Thank you, Craig. As I'm sure you've probably already gathered, this idea of literally revisioning the same content for research students has blown my mind a little bit. So that's certainly something I'll be going away to think about. Dave talked about standardisation being particularly important in creating a valid assessment. Our last episode was all about standardisation, so head back to your podcast feed to listen to that one. I'll be back in two weeks' time, helping to answer more of your questions. But in the meantime, make sure you rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. Do also join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag InsideExams. Until next time, goodbye.